Hey, welcome to Educate for Life with Ryan Francis. Let's get right into it. Well, (laughs) I am joined once again with the fascinating human who uses the label Paul Pietro Carlo as a general container for his essence. Sorry, I've been watching a bunch of Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Um, (laughs) Round three. Yes. Three of our epic uh, conversation here, which has been, uh, again, totally, totally wonderful. And uh, I really appreciate being here and with you. And it gives me a nice excuse to see you a little bit more, you know? Yeah, I know. Seriously, we went years without regular contact. And then in the last few months, we've been chatting a lot. Yeah, it's been nice. Um, yeah, not just recording too, just like text messages. Yeah, just talking on the phone and, and, and sharing life, yeah. Yeah, it's been nice. Uh, well, generally speaking, we're talking about handling transitions. Mm-hmm. And specifically, in the first series, we were talking about kind of how we frame our experience around um, transitions and and how that can define whether or not something is like quote unquote a good transition um, and whether or not those transitions feel thrust upon us versus consciously engaging in them. And then we chatted about a lot of the traps that can we can fall into while we are handling really any type of decision making, but especially decision making that again falls under that context of a transition, whether it's a life change or relationship change or whatever else. And that there tend to be these three major fears of death and failure and ironically success. And we talked about a couple of ways that you can be afraid of success that I thought was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And then um also, just generally, we've been chatting about self-talk. That, that is an inherent part of all of this. Mm-hmm. The messages that we tell ourselves, the messages that we internalize from others and repeat on a loop, um, and how we might start to uh, assemble those and, when, and, and come to recognition of what those things are, whether it's you know coaching, journaling, therapy, chatting with a friend, as presuming, of course, as we mentioned, uh, it is a reflective conversation with a friend and not just a bitch session. Right. Uh, Because bitch sessions tend to reinforce our self-talk and belief. Like, oh my God, my boss is so terrible. Well, okay, if you just repeat that over and over. My boss is an asshole too. You know what he did to me today? Oh, no, no, no. I got to tell you what mine did. No, no, mine was worse. Yeah, yeah. And that just reinforces, 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 reinforces. As opposed to um, you know, putting yourself in a position to change change the narrative, right? Because that's that's effectively what it comes down to: is that we're a character in our own story, and we're also the author. So if we're if we're if we're writing a narrative where uh, the main character is always a victim, then guess right. what? The main character is always a victim. So we need to find a way to connect that authorship uh, back to back to our lives. So. And that leads us to the topic of the day, um, which is decision making. Yes. And that there are a couple of things that we were hoping to chat about around decision making 
I think I'm going to have to rename because uh, I just released episode one from our first set of three conversations. Nine episodes um, yeah. all told. And uh, I think I'm going to need to rename it not just part one, but like round one, part one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then exactly. it'll be round one, part one, two, three, then round two, part one, two, three. And now we're on round three, part one, um, to chat about decision making in this larger context. And something very, very specific that you and I have encountered. And that is this idea of having, quote, too many, unquote, choices. And I was hoping maybe you could characterize that for everyone real quick, Paul, before I say anything else about it. Um, let's see, how would I characterize that? Well, and I guess I'm just going for my own case. Um, I mean, I have a lot of skills and talents, as we all do. And these skills and talents lead to opportunities, various opportunities. But in my case, it seems like I have so many uh, opportunities or so many options that I don't want to negate one or the other. I want to have them all. And instead of having even one of them, I have none of them because I, I, I don't want to grasp one at the detriment of another. And it's like, wait a minute, just do one, see where it leads. And if it leads this way, fine. If it, if it leads nowhere, fine. And then you could, you got your upper, other opportunity to explore. So that's how I would characterize it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating to characterize it specifically about being a multi-passionate person. You know, Marie Forleo talks about that a lot. Um, and she is obviously a multi-passionate individual. And um, you know, the, a big challenge for multi-passionate people is exactly what you just described. Mm-hmm. This idea that somehow... Uh, choosing one path uh, cuts off the capacity to ever follow the other paths because we have this uh, combination of catastrophizing that's natural (laughs) for our brains as well as this idea that whatever's happening now is this this now is forever so whatever decision is made now is for perpetuity it's going to be etched in stone and 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 i am bound to that stone forever Um, what is me that would bring change upon myself Yes. Hmm. Oh, ooh, there's a lot to explore there. Um, <laughs> and and so there's a security in, of course, things not changing. I, I also think that beyond the multi-passionate conversation or connected perhaps the multi-passionate conversation is this repeated idea of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Where it's the, the, there, you can be right or wrong and that every time you make a decision it's right or wrong. So like proverbially the apples and oranges, you know, you say it's apples and oranges. You can't compare the two. Like it, how, how true is it that in a single moment when you have an apple and an orange in front of you and you need to choose need quote, need to choose, right? You're hungry. There's an apple and orange in front of you. Which one do you choose? As if somehow that if you choose the wrong one, it's going to terribly upend your life. If you choose the apple when you quote should have chosen the orange, there's a overwhelm that occurs when we need to be right. And that is made 10,000 times worse when you have a multitude 
of options. Humans seem to be uh, binary whenever possible. So choosing between two things feels comfortable. Vaguely choosing between three things starts to be a little more uncomfortable. And then when you have the smorgasbord of life, as someone communicated it to me, I was like, I have so much going on. I have so much I could do. And I don't know if I said this to you or if I said this to Nick or who I said it to. Um, but they said, well, try this meditation. I'll try this reflection. Um, in the smorgasbord of life, what is the dish that would be the most wonderful for me right now? Right. That I would most enjoy right now. And reflecting on it in that way, as opposed to in the smorgasbord of life, what's the right choice? That's a totally different world. Um, then, you know, what would I enjoy right now? What is, what, what fits in with my open heart right now? Where is my heart? Where is my heart right now? And what is going to be most, most sympathetic or cogent to that, I guess, yeah. at, at this moment. And I think we touched on this last time. I mean, I'm really kind of, I think maybe for the first or second time in my life, I'm actually trusting myself mm. to know that the decisions I'm making are the right decisions for me right now. And I've spent a lot of time avoiding that or running from that, hiding from that. Um, as you, you know, uh, we've talked yeah. before and, uh, it really feels good and things are starting to open up. It's really amazing. I think there's a really critical idea and I'm trying to recall where I would say discovered it, but I guess presented to me would be a more accurate description. I think it's a combination of a Zen philosophy and Toltec philosophy Essentially, there's an idea of dependent co-arising in mm. Zen, that each of us are making choices, living experiences, and all our experiences are informing each other and therefore affecting each other. So everything is co-arising, and this idea that somehow one experience is independent of another, like truly independent and unrelated, is a fiction. Uh, so it all dependently co-arising. And I, I like to joke, it's not codependent arising, it's dependent co-arising. Very important. <laughs> <clears throat> so in the Toltec philosophy, there's this idea of the path of growth versus the path of learning, which I think we may have discussed. I think we talked about that last week. Brief, yeah, in, in one of these sets of conversations. Um, and that the path of learning tends to be um, passive in so far as we wait to bump into things and then we change the thing that we experienced through the bumping in to um, versus the path of growth, which tends to be a more active participation. But there's a critical component of the path of growth that's more than just the conscious engagement and self-development. It is co-creation. Right with let's let's say the universe for for a you know a quote non-religious term um which of course as we know multiple multiple spiritual practices don't necessarily require a theistic perspective to whatever still have a godlike perception but uh or analog i think you understand my meaning so um 
this idea of co-creation is extending the idea of dependent co-arising where everything is happening, you know, together and saying, I'm going to consciously create in my life with the material that I have. And so often, I mean, that is inherently uncomfortable. For people who have been trained, there's a right and a wrong answer. For people who have been trained, especially with fixed mindset, that there's either you get it right or you get it wrong. And then, you know, if there's success or there's failure, you know, again, very binary. Um, or, or again, waiting to have experiences happen to you and then adjust for those experiences. The idea of taking ownership and responsibility for what's happening in your life in a really... And not just generally taking responsibility for what's happening in my life, but I'm going to actively participate in my life to such a degree that I'm going for massive goals. Right. Theoretically. Right. I mean, co-creation can just be, I'm going to co-create a car by saving money and it doesn't always have to be huge, um, but it becomes very apparent when you're in that space of conscious co-creation, right? Not just waiting for things to happen to you or hoping for opportunities, but creating opportunities. Well, something came to mind, this notion of enough. Do I have enough? Am I enough? Can I do this co-creation? Am I sufficient enough to bring this about? You know, and that's, that's kind of tied to, uh, I guess it are one of these feelings in, in our society about you have to keep accumulating more and more and more. And uh, you, at, at a certain point you've accumulated enough where you've, ah, you've arrived and some people keep going and even though they've arrived and they're comfortable, but they want to keep on going. And uh, it's, 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 it's interesting uh, that, 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 that seems to me to be like a societal effect. Um, yeah. There seems to be a point counterpoint. <laughs> in our culture specifically around perceived greed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I think <clears throat> you and I were also chatting about last, con- I mean, we recorded it last week, but audience is going to hear this like months apart probably. Uh, <laughs> but Or in reverse. Uh, or in reverse. Yeah, in if, you're li- if you're listening <laughs> on the most recent episode backwards through iTunes <laughs> playlist, uh, then yeah, that'll, that's probably the case. Um, but, uh, and actually Google podcast works that way as well. I have to consciously change mm, order if they're part of a series, but, um, you threw me off, man. You threw Sorry. Me off. It's all good. Uh, what, what was I, what was I saying? Um, when we're talking oh, greed about, society. Uh, yes. So, um, I believe you and I were chatting about this idea of not wanting to make money because we associate having money with those people who have money who are assholes. Right. Right. That it's not the money that we're actually concerned about. It's the transformation that we anticipate in ourselves because we see certain people being a certain way with money. So in a society with significant socioeconomic disparity and characterizations of poverty, characterizations of wealth, both that seem highly unpleasant, and how we associate money as a critical component of our lives, our status, uh, our survival, et cetera, et cetera. There are these competing forces. And when you say, do I have enough? There are people who will intentionally limit themselves 
because they have been raised to, quote, not be greedy, unquote, not be opulent, you know, quote, unquote, that there is desired not to be like those awful people. And so anything that is attached to those people by association becomes in itself a limiting factor right. where we, we, we maintain a sense of scarcity because we think scarcity will keep us grounded, human, pleasant, cheap humble. value. Humble. humble. Humble, right. Right. Righteous and humble. And the great irony is that some of the most, some of the most gracious people I've ever met are very affluent people. Yeah. I mean, and these people truly, authentically are heart centered, operate from, from their heart. And it's, it's, it's very refreshing. And it's like, okay, so I can be that too. I'm not going to, I don't think anything's going to truly change me. If I suddenly become uh, very wealthy, I, I, I'm not going to put my nose up to uh, certain people or, or disassociate from uh, communicating with everybody I possibly can, which I just love. You know, I'm like, yeah. you don't talk to anybody, right? Yeah, it was very powerful for me as an experience of myself uh, when I was at a speed networking event, which is essentially where the goal is to talk to everybody in the room and it's structured. So you have like two minutes mm-hmm. and then they, you have to switch seats and, and you just kind of move around. It's kind of like speed dating, but it's just to meet other right. people who you can support each other in your businesses or in your lives. And uh, one of the structured questions, not that you had to use the structured questions. And I think I may have talked about this in a past episode. One of the structured questions was, you know, if you, if money was no object, if you had infinite money tomorrow, what would change in your life? And the thing that popped into my head um, was what I'm doing now, just bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I didn't have to worry about money, I would still be recording my podcast. I'd still want to be coaching. Um, right. It would just all get turned up to 11 because I'd have the resources to do my podcast while traveling, which Aaron would just... Aaron's The first thing I knew, if Aaron was answering that question, if you had no limit of funds, what would you do? She's like, travel, travel all the time. I'd be in another country doing another cool thing, you know, having an experience if, if money was no object. I knew that would be her answer. So part of my brain was like, I could do everything I'm doing now on the road. <laughs> I could right. go... It's, it's Educate for Life coming to you today from Morocco. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Right. Exactly. Or like Japan. Or right. I, I want to go back to Japan. I want to go back to Ireland. I want to, you know, at right. that point, it'd be like, well, let's let's like buy a place in New Orleans and make sure I can visit there more often because exactly. my experience with the French Quarter just like was revolutionary for me. Like it just it felt so. I was afraid. I'm like, oh man, it's going to be New Orleans and it's going to be so dumb. And then I walked into the French Quarter and was like, or it could be home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a very cool experience. And Japan has a similar feeling and Ireland has a similar feeling. That's um, how I felt in Japan too. I was at first, I was kind of, before I went there, I was kind of, was a little intimidated, right? Mm. But once I got there, it was like, oh, that's why I'm here. It's like, this feels normal. This feels right. I mean, even though I was still separate, yeah. I wasn't Japanese. And they never let me forget I wasn't Japanese. And it was hard not to forget that I wasn't Japanese. But the culture was such, and the, and the experience was such, that it's like, oh, I feel just at ease here. It's, it's just got a kind of cool groove. Yeah. 
Very much so. So that was very informative to me that if someone were to plop millions of dollars into my lap tomorrow and say, this is enough money that you could live off the interest if you just, you know, go to a bank that you like their mission and and live off of the live off the interest. It's like how would how would I live my life? And it's like that's that's how I would do. So money doesn't have to money can reinforce and extend all the good in my life. It doesn't have to enforce all the quote negative right. quote in my life. And there's conscious choices that can be made. If if one unconsciously receives a large sum of money, it is probable for it to uh, exacerbate the unexamined and 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 you know catapult that into the forefront. Uh, but if there's conscious choices you can make or you can enter into the agreement consciously, and when I say the agreement, that's a little. Toltecian, sorry. Let me just say. I'm inverse enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You basically are going to make an agreement with money, about money, et cetera, when you receive that money, Mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously. So when you enter, if you enter into the agreement consciously, you know, I agree to receive this money, and in receiving this money, I will blank. Right. Right. Uh, In receiving this money, I will hire four people to help me grow my business and that will help bring abundance and prosperity to them and their lives and their families as well. Right. That's a very different agreement than I receive this money and in receiving this money, I agree to hoard it (laughs) and only spend on things that uh, will continue to allow me to acquire stuff. Yeah. That's a very different agreement that's being made about, about money. Um, well, I guess, you know, a lot of my peers, people I grew up with, they, they operate in exactly that way. I mean, they've been very successful. They're very, uh, I mean, they're really amazing what they've done with their lives um, as far as their businesses and their families and everything else. But yet there's still this, I'm going to hoard it as mine. It's not really there. It's kind of a level three thing where, again, this yeah. is just, okay, I'm going to get mine no matter what. But if you if you get some, that's great, but you don't have to. And it's primarily here for me. And uh, sometimes it gets a little, a little thick, if you will. <laughs> well, a quick review of, of, of levels since it was well, here again. episode here again. one of what will be nine. Uh, or episode two, rather. Episode two of what will be nine. Level one, victim. Level two, aggressor. Level three, negotiation. Level four, giving and compassion. Level five, I, I can never characterize level five well. Can you help help me out with that one? I'd say the uh, the, the uh, beginnings of the trust of your intuition. Ah, trust, right. So so three is very win-lose. Right. Um, four is starting to enter into win-win um, five is more like there's nothing but win. Like it's now we're ev- everything has an opportunity um, for for people to get out of the circumstance. Um, and then six, now we're in the land of more free creativity. There's no such thing as winning and losing. You wouldn't even necessarily call it an opportunity explicitly because it's just like, how can I play right, right. now? And right. seven is we're talking like, Crown chakra, universal connection, flow, state, um, next level, 
ness uh and starting to enter into those types of realms so um for someone to be level three with their money is the idea that they would negotiate value be concerned about um you know maintaining their wealth um and uh you know it is primarily their wealth like is what you what you expressed what you expressed was very level five Okay, that I'm going to take this money, expand my business so that I can create work for other people so that they can they can now be, you know, expansive in their own right, as opposed to, well, hey, I'm going to make this money and I'm going to keep this money. I'm going to guard this money and nobody's going to get to my money. But if you're associated with me, maybe you're going to get some benefit, maybe not, but I'm still going to get the benefit. So... Yeah, it's definitely more tribalistic, certainly in that, in that regard. What I extend my, what and who I extend my identity around can win, and anything that I do not extend my identity around could win if they have an opportunity to win, so long as it's not at the cost of myself or those I extend right. my identity around. That or is what I perceive. What I perceive is at the cost of myself, when in fact right. it's not. Right. Yes. Well, because it really, of course, all this comes down to perception. You know, when people talk about getting offended by something as if the person was talking directly to them and it's intending mm-hmm. to hurt them. And it's like, no, the person's having their own experience over there. Right. Which is, again, now we get into that like level five space where it's like, no, you're having your experience. I'm having my experience and how we're informing each other's experience is a little bit different from um, everything that you do has saying something about me. Right. That's a much more level one, two, three type of a reality um, right. where three is that transition between level two and level four, specifically the egocentric. And when I say ego, I'm going to talk about this a lot more. And if you've watched some videos that I've put out and will will be putting out, then you'll understand that by ego, I'm not talking about some inherently negative thing. Right. Um, <laughs> ego is just about identity. Uh, and so level one and two are a very personalized egoic identity. That's why you could be a victim and an aggressor because you're either sucking in on yourself uh, and things are happening to you or you're pushing back against the things you see as happening to you. And so three, again, you're starting to negotiate. So you can be more giving and there are opportunities for wins uh, that don't I, exist in level one and two. I think in one and two, the ego is actually working against you rather than for you. And and it's kind of like you you set it up that way. You by holding things a certain way, you you allow the ego to just go into real protective mode. And that protective mode comes out as I'm a victim and my ego's here to tell me I'm a victim and then you get angry and my ego's here to to thrust my anger upon the world or those around me at least. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um I connect with what you just said as far as like a lack of a awareness if you're operating uh, on your baseline of a lack of awareness that level one and two that's the relationship i like to say in those sorts of states when you go as your best friend that's giving you terrible advice mm-hmm. um the part at which i would disagree is a matter of if i say live my life at a level five generally Right. I know this is all very numerical ratio, whatever, which is not the intended component of this conversation. But no, no. I just for, for contrast, if I generally walk around with the idea that there are opportunities around me at all times and something comes out of left field 
smacks me in the head and I get, you know, knocked around or punched in the gut and, you know, lose my wind, whatever. The level one experience I may have in that moment might allow me to connect to others to come to my aid and receive help in a way that I wouldn't have received help if I was at a level two. Right. And so there is an opportunity there, even in that kind of victim state can lead to very positive connection and forward movement. Similarly, if I get hit in the head and it turns out it was from someone who has literally hit me in the head and is seeking to attack me and harm me, level two in that moment is a fantastic opportunity for me to straight up beat the shit out of that person so they cannot do me any more physical harm. And there's not a goddamn thing wrong with me experiencing anger and aggression in that moment and having a level two moment in order to preserve my own safety. Now, if that comes down to now burn them all, well, it's a very different conversation. Now, now we've exited being general average level five type of consciousness right. that had a level two moment. Right. You know, people walk around with level two as their default. Right. That's your ego as your enemy because your sense of self-preservation is actually harming you. Right. Consistently probably harming you and putting you in awful circumstances. But if level two is a moment that you are leveraging because level two has to do with outward action, um, then that can be incredibly positive. So I just wanted to distinguish between sure. someone who lives in a level two or lives in a level one and right. someone who visits a level two, either because of a lack of consciousness that sucks them into that state or a conscious choice to engage with that state. It's a survival mechanism. That's, right. that's also often overlooked. Right. Anger is a survival mechanism. Right. Anger is powerful. Anger is positive depending on how you interact with it. And that was a huge learning for me as someone who was very angry as a kid who then tried to turn off all my anger as best I could for a very long period of time until it would pop out in these huge ugly ways out of nowhere because I just have this slow burn, slow burn, slow burn, and then short fuse. Popped out disproportionately. Yes, exactly. And so learning to embrace my anger to the point where, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, I don't remember what what guests I've talked about it with, but to the point where after my depression and recovered from my, my depression is where I embraced the fullness of my emotional experience when I had emotions again, straight up, because I didn't have them for a while. Like embracing that emotion made me so much more assertive in my life because when something was not the way that I thought was the most valuable for it to be, me trying to consider as many angles as I could in that moment, whether it's the server at a restaurant and maybe they're having a bit bad day or this or the other thing, instead of just excusing my feelings away, I'd be like, no, this is unacceptable to me. I have a set of values around that. I accept those values. I'm not harming anyone by engaging in, in, in wanting this, whatever it was. Better service. Sure. For example, better service, you know, better food, man, this is terrible. <laughs> this is legitimately terrible. This and is, I would is, like something different. Uh, and that for my whole life, I didn't do that. It was like, Oh, it's good enough. Yeah. It's good enough. The, the passive, kind of get into that passive mode. I had, a, I had an experience with some friends this weekend, early this weekend. Um, you know, I felt like they were ganging up on me the two of them, because I can be rather acerbic with my tongue, as you yeah. may, as you may well no. 
and, and so one guy kept trying to zing me, right? And they weren't real zings, and they weren't funny, and I passed them off. But then we're later on, we were talking, and he does another one, and, and, and the other guy says, oh, that's four you got in now. And I'm like, what the fuck are you two talking about? I mean, th this is pissing me off. It's like, you know, I know I'm acerbic, and I know I say things that are pretty, they, that sting. But I just do them because that's me. I'm not doing them to whatever. I mean, yeah, some people would say, oh, you're really attacking a person's character. You're disrespectful, whatever. Okay, fine. But, but for you to sit here and do it and you to sit here and tally them up, and I said, no, this is bullshit. It's like, I, I, I'm not putting up with it. I go, I sit here, I listen. I said, you, friend A, you always scream when your boundaries are being crossed but you step all over my boundaries and don't even care to ask, or if even if I tell you where my boundary is, you don't, you don't acknowledge it. Mm. And you, friend B, uh, why are you doing this? Because I've never been disrespectful to you. I've never, I've always listened to you. I've enjoyed your, your, your conversation, our conversation. I've enjoyed your counsel. I've sought your counsel on things. So what the hell is this? So I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do this. I'm not playing. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting. It was about a 20 minute harangue. I was in fine form. Hmm. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how did that conclude? Well, it concluded okay. I mean, I, I, I think they realized I had to get out what I had to get out. And I, I put up with a lot for a while. I mean, at one point the guy said, well, maybe we shouldn't be friends anymore. I go, well, maybe we shouldn't. And then they're like, no, no, we shouldn't do that. We, you know, we need to be friends. We need to work this out. And I gave the one guy a ride home and we talked for a while. And it was just like, look, uh, you know, thank you for putting up with my, my, you know, my, my little explosion there. But I just, there are things I just had to get off my mind. So I, I don't think I've ever done anything purposely harmful to you ever, but this, this felt planned and, 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 premeditated and I felt uh, very much at a disadvantage. But I think that happens a lot with when there's a three-way friendship and there's three friends. Mm -hmm. two, tend to, two tend to side with one another at any, any given point and it's, it's just an odd dynamic in a three-way friendship. It's interesting. Is it okay if I explore a general thought around that? Hey, we're here for exploration. Alright, cool. Yeah, I, just, I don't want anyone to feel you know dissected. Um, it's interesting because what I heard and what you just described, I see often and I see in my own interactions that I've been calling upon myself to, to change those interactions more now. And that is, there is a tendency, I think, in humans to want to have our minds read by the right. people around us, that we want everyone to feel what we're feeling without us needing to have the Frankly, vulnerability to, to speak to what we're experiencing. And so I think also that speaks to our boundaries um, that we tend to tolerate things instead of communicating our boundaries. And, and to be clear, I do like Brooke Castillo's description. Boundaries are not um, the, the limiter of other people's behavior because we have no control over them. Boundaries are communicating our own needs, wishes, and desires. Right. And once we've communicated them, how we choose to respond to people not honoring them. So right. boundaries are really about our reaction to other people 
how, how do we choose to engage with that experience? And so, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, Hey, you just pissed me off because you've been picking on me for 20 minutes. It's a different thing to say, Hey, I don't think you're meaning to hurt me, but I got to let you know that thing that you just said as an item number one, or maybe you tolerate item number one because you don't really know that it's a, a pattern that's going to be happening and you wait until it happens a second time and you go, okay, well, the first time, whatever, it could have been a passing thing, but this has now happened more than once. I just want to let you know that I would appreciate it stop or, you know, is there something that we need to resolve because it seems that something's going on here, whatever. It, it's a very different conversation when we choose to enter in vulnerably early on as early as we become aware as opposed to tolerating until we're at the point of explosion because it changes the characterization and the nature of the conversation when we wait that long well and i think that's a really good point because i have you know i have a tendency to be this uh, and for all of you that know me out there whoever you may be i am a very kind of passive person really i i just kind of sit there and go along and it may not, it may bother me or whatever. I'll just keep moving. But, and, and I have made a, a resolve to, you know, if something's bothering me, I'm going to bring it up. I had another situation with another friend and it, it bothered me all night. So the next morning I called him and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I know, I know what the, where this is going. I said, yeah. And I said, I just want, I said, my question to him was, do you have, do you harbor some kind of resentment toward me? Mm. Because the comment you made last night in public in front of people was kind of hurtful and kind of embarrassing. And I just want to make sure, you know, we've known each other a long time. I want to make sure that we understand one another and that we're, we're clear. I, yeah, I, and I took pains to explain to him how much he meant in my life. I mean, this guy was my, like my original yoga teacher, right? Mm. And I've known him for 27 years or so. It's like, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want this to fester and get, get out of hand. I just want you to know. He goes, yeah, I, I, he says, I thought about that after I said it. And I, he says, I didn't mean, he says, I was just kind of giving you shit. And it's all right. I, I said, it's okay. I don't mind getting shit. I can give shit right back. It, it's just, I, I just felt like, this came from a place of some jealousy or resentment toward me. And I, and I, I think you're a person that's bigger than that. And I want to make sure that that was the case. So mm. it got resolved pretty well. And in fact, <clears throat> he's asked me to teach some Kundalini yoga classes. Oh, fabulous. Well, I know I want to hook you up with my friend, uh, Lumina. She and her family do a, uh, family yoga course, a Kundalini mm. yoga Hmm. It'd be really fascinating to to have you guys chat at some point. Uh, yeah. Your series of podcasts will be coming out in between multiple of our <laughs> <laughs> of our conversations. Our epic you know, series. <laughs> yeah. Hey, y'all! Just want to take a quick break in the action. Let you know that if you're enjoying what you're listening to please do recommend it to a friend. I would love to expand my audience. And the best ways to do that are word of mouth and reviewing my podcast on the iTunes Apple podcast platform. If you'd like to leave me a voice comment, go over to anchor.fm slash educate for life. Anchor.fm slash educate the number four life. It might even end up in the show. For more information about what I'm up to, please check out my website, www.educate4.life. 
That's educate, the number four, dot life. Now, back to the show. And, and getting back to that notion, you know, talking about vulnerability, et cetera, et cetera, desire to be correct, is really desire to be correct is, is to protect ourselves from right. the experience of whatever vulnerability and failure, et cetera. Like, so it, that, that if let's say, let's, let's rewind and see if we can wrap in part of what we were just talking about, because a lot of what we're talking about, generally speaking, humans are trying to avoid feeling discomfort and vulnerability is one of the surefire ways to feel uncomfortable, especially if we've had negative experiences in vulnerability, whether in relationship or by taking risk and then not having the outcome that we desire, and then not having anything to positively connect to in that experience to allow us to choose to take, continue to take risk. All right. So one of the things that you and I were chatting about uh, in this grand scheme of conversation that we're having is that an antidote for this type of needing to be correct, this type of overwhelm is developing the capacity to just go, mm-hmm. to be able to take action. And mm-hmm. I know we wanted to chat a bit about how we develop this capacity. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, what, what makes up the basis of this capacity? And I would say there's two different things that make up the basis of this capacity. And then the other one is like the the results i suppose or the the meeting the meeting of expectations okay so let's chat about it yes what what helps us develop the capacity to just go well i think I think in my case, I finally get to the point where it's like, okay, I've, I've remained idle long enough. It's time to, time to jump off the cliff. I've been looking at that. I've been looking at that water 20 feet below there and it looks really nice and cool and refreshing and it's sure hot up on this cliff. Time to go. Um, that's one. The other is, again, we talked about this trust in yourself. It's, it's like, okay, uh, I'm not going because I'm not sure I'm quite good enough to to do this at this time, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you're never going to know whether you're good enough to do it at this time if you don't do it or not. If you don't do it, you're you're for sure going to not know. And if you do it, at least you find out whether you you did or not. And then if you have the capacity or you you don't get beat up too much, that you can make it make adjustments and make it make it work however it has to work and uh i think i think that's part of that's that's how i look at it anyway yeah it's funny that you said that besides the notion that i wanted to discuss uh genius steven has a podcast the good things in life and she interviewed uh a gentleman norm with cerebral palsy and his um i don't know what the appropriate the co-author and program co-chair. I, I'm not hundred percent on, on what their professional relationship is. Emma, they were discussing uh, integration of children with special needs slash intellectual disabilities into the mainstream classroom. 
And they were emphasizing this idea that capacity doesn't come before opportunity. Opportunity develops capacity. So it's like the first time someone walks into a dance class and they're like, well, I'm terrible at this. I'm leaving. It's like, why did, were you taking the dance class because you thought you were just automatically going to be good at dancing? I thought the reason you were at the dance class was to become a better dancer or to learn how to learn technique Mm-hmm. have a different experience of dancing, right? Again, it's this fixed versus growth mindset thing. You need the opportunity first and then you need to take advantage of the opportunity in order to develop your capacity. Right. Not, right, right. Like there was only so long that I could sit in the parking lot with my mom in the passenger seat and me in the driver's seat learning to drive a stick where I literally was memorizing how it felt. Right. The feeling of shifting from first to second to third to fourth because I wanted to be as prepared as possible when I pulled out on the road. So shifting felt second nature. At some point, I needed to get out of the parking lot onto the road and shift in a real life, unusual circumstance. There's only so much that I could do. There was no way to perfectly prepare to be on the road. I just needed to be on the road. It's your video game upbringing. (laughs) Right, yeah, I suppose so. Also, just generally, I I am a preparedness type of person. If there's a way that I can prepare, it's like, say I showed up in a Japanese class I had spent the summer basically uh, teaching myself um, the simple hiragana and katakana so that I wouldn't feel lost knowing that it was going to be a more immersive program, that it was going to be light on the romaji and more the, you know, not that I care about Japanese, look it up, but basically understand foreign symbols versus English based symbols. Um, that's or Latin based technically, but whatever, let's not worry about that. Uh, hence Romaji Roman. Yes. So, uh, you know, there's a, that's a very different, that definitely put me ahead as far as my capacity to be relaxed in that class when I first showed up in class. But at the same time, I needed to show up to class to understand sentence structure and everything else in ways that I couldn't just do by learning those characters. Right. So I could teach myself a component, but I still needed to have the fullness of the experience. This actually speaks to me to the two things that I think builds our capacity for being able to just go. And that is one, tolerance of discomfort, which is a, a trained experience that, that we need to put ourselves in uncomfortable positions to, to tolerate discomfort. And then that allows us to take action while having that experience. And the second thing is learning, frankly, in, to have fun, learning about enjoyment. Like where's the fun in the failure? Right. There, there needs to be something positive for me to experience. Well, it doesn't need to be. There's some people who just are masters of dealing with discomfort. And they're like, my goal is X. It doesn't matter how I feel about goal X. I have set my mind upon goal X. And I can have absolutely nothing to celebrate until I hit goal X. And so I am just going to slog through this. It's like very survival oriented. I need to get there to live. So I'm going to make it through this shit and wading through these brambles and whatever the hell I need to do to get there. Look, I've gotten there. I have achieved. Now let's do the next thing. Like some, some people have that capacity. I rarely <laughs> operate that way. Well, I, I'm like you in that regard. I mean, I, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, like I said, I was mentioning my friends earlier. I mean, they just do it. They just slog it out, get it done. And they, and they got the results for it. But then I look at their lives and it's like, Wow, you're pretty empty. Mm. 
you, I mean, yeah, you have all these things, you're doing all these things, you're seeing all these things, but what's, who are you? Who are you other than a, a visceral example, or not visceral, sorry, a, a tangible, a tangible yeah. example yeah, of right. these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I had a friend, Kelly, ask on Instagram, Kelly T Health, check her out. She's awesome. Um, she was asking her audience, what was a ritual or habit or something that helped them be successful? And I said, remembering joy. Yeah. And I think that is so often lost. Oh yeah. And in this exploration and this adventure that a great way to engage with quote failure unquote is, you know, I was talking to, I think it was Preeti about the lesson and the learning, right? This is, there's these really cool experiences that we can have if we engage consciously in the thing that's uncomfortable and that that gives us something to celebrate. Like I've gone to three dance classes, even though I wanted to quit after the first one, that is a legitimate thing that I can celebrate. Oh, I learned how to do a step that was really challenging for me when I first showed up and I can tell I'm getting better at it because blank, you know, I still am crap at tab dancing, but at least I can shuffle now. Right. That that if we only, again, if we, all our goals are binary success or failure, right. Precisely. If we just have these extremes, then we have nothing to celebrate. But if, if you're able to look at the progression and give yourself measurements of progression and focus on those measurements, and you can celebrate them. Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a dear friend, and she's a yoga instructor, and she does. Uh, you know, I, I am. I mean, my first, my first experience with yoga was Kundalini yoga, so it's a little different. It's a more spiritual path, and her, her style of yoga is flow yoga, which I really don't know much about. Vinyasa. But I am, I am in a room full of. 20 and 30 and maybe a single 40 year old room, you know, 40 year old in this room of 30 people doing yoga. And man, I tell you, I was getting my ass kicked. I really take a lot of pauses and sometimes thinking, Oh man, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it through this class. Hmm. But the last time I was there, man, I did really well. I was like, I am making progress here. I am, I am, finally getting this and I'm fine and it, because it's a really good workout. Um, I mean, it, it truly is. It's just a great, and I feel really good afterwards. And it's, it's, it's just, it was nice to have this recognition that I am making progress when I, I always was dreading going to these classes cause I was the old guy that was falling behind. But I, I think about it. I, I, do pretty well for my age in comparison to some of these people that are much younger. It's funny. I show you young whippersnapper. <laughs> I, yeah, I was just going to comment on uh, what some people call comparison-itis, uh, right. which mm-hmm. can so often be detrimental when we compare ourselves to others. It keeps right. from enjoying what we're doing within our own capacity and measuring against ourselves. Uh, but for some people it's fuel and they can say something like what you just said, which is, well, I'm 23 years older than you and I'm doing better than you. So, ah, um, you know, that has its own, has its own value. Um, I don't 
I don't operate like that. I'm not, it's not really how I, but, but it's just kind of like, wow, I'm actually here with these people. It's so much younger and I'm keeping up. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping up and it's like, it's a good feeling. Right. And, um, you just, you know, like, you know, us old people were, you know, we feel unslotted by the millennials. So we are, we're all these, always defensive about millennials. So. <laughs> well, uh, some people need, this is what I was saying about no level of consciousness or energy being inherently bad. Some right. people need something to push against in order to propel themselves right. forward. They need a sense of resistance or struggle and they that's valuable to them. And if they want, that for the rest of their lives or that's the tool they know and they're willing to continue to use it, then great. Then be like, you told me I couldn't do it. I'm going to prove you wrong. And if that gets it done for you, then great. Um, That's very uncomfortable for me. Uh, I use that experience very rarely as fuel. When I do, I do. And and it's worked. Um, But that's not my usual choice. My usual choice is to be like, okay, well, then I don't need to interact with you. I'm going to go be over here and (laughs) I'll find another way to achieve what I want to achieve. But to get back specifically to the decision-making and the developing capacity in and of itself, something that you just said about how you experienced doing Kundalini yoga, I think it's really great to have something you can celebrate immediately. Exactly. So, because what I think is discouraging is that people think I'm terrible at this. And it might take them six months to become consciously aware of how much better they are. Right. right. It's like when people hike every day, it might take whatever, two weeks, and suddenly they notice they're not, you know, heaving and, you know, sputtering, getting up the hill that they used to heave and sputter to get up two right. weeks ago. But it took two weeks. And some people don't have the capacity to experience the discomfort for even more than three days before they're like, screw this noise, but it would have taken two weeks. So there needs to be something to celebrate in the interim, like I made it. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be a genuine positive experience to have. That's the, the finding right. the fun part. That's the having something to celebrate part that's so critical. And the reason that I feel we're talking about this at all <laughs> is because of, I dare say, the fact that taking action is a remedy for indecision. Mm-hmm. To your point about like, well, how long am I going to think about this before I jump in the water? Right. At some point, the only way out of indecision is action. Because right. the, the, you, are, you are enforcing in your brain that you've made a decision by taking an action on it. Because you can say you know, um, I, I've made a decision. Great. So what? (laughs) Nothing's happened yet. Yeah. Right. But once you take the action, then you've cemented that that was your decision. And it's so long as again, there's some sense of follow through as well. And it's real curious. It's curious too, that, that, you know, that that one step in, in, in any direction starts to, uh, channel a flow in that direction and i i see it i felt it i've experienced it i see it in other people all the time it's just you know take that initial well it's like me okay you're a dancer Mm -hmm. i i like to dance i'm not a professional dancer but 
dance to the music, right? Yeah. I remember, I remember like when I was in high school, I was so like scared, scared to ask a girl to dance and actually get out on the dance floor and dance at like the high school dances. And I, and I finally, I don't know how long it took me months of dances. And I finally asked somebody to dance and started dancing. It was like, Hey, I really like this. This is, mm. I'm enjoying this. This is fun. And, uh, it, but it was again, taking that first step and getting on the dance floor that, that did it. Now, yeah. And much, much to my chagrin, one of my buddies was always in the background snickering at me with pointing at me because I was dancing because he didn't dance. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that, that whole judgment is a projection of our own insecurity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and and the fact is that wins breed wins, right? Just like losses breed losses right. if we're focused on the loss, right? So if we can find something that is positive, you know, quote positive as fuel um, to direct us toward again the maintenance of that flow state, uh, right. then that's that's a pretty big deal. Or to be able to work through those moments of of a heightened discomfort because. Um, something feels like suffering because it feels like losing, then that's, that's huge. And each time we take an action, we're believing in ourselves or we're teaching ourselves to believe in ourselves each time we take an action in the face of discomfort. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you, when you hit that, that discomfort wall, Mm -hmm. how how do you work through it? How do you, how do you, I mean, you rationalize it and say, well, this is all going to be worth it in the end, or just, do you just say, well, this is uncomfortable. That's the way it is. Me, for me personally? Yeah. For me personally, it's a combination of intellectual self-engagement. Right. And uh, borrowing belief. Mm-hmm. So uh, the intellectual engagement is I have collected enough experience from others to have formed a, a, a pattern, like a, a, something that I perceive to be true that the winning is on the other side of this discomfort. I accept the discomfort as part of it. Mm -hmm. So I just need to wade in, right? It's like this water is cold, but I know that uh, swimming is fun. Once I get past my nipples, I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Depending on what your, your uh, threshold for discomfort is. Um, And so that's one one way I address it. Actually, there's three ways now that I think of it. The 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 second way, I was actually going to say the third way and skip the second way and come back to the second way, um, is borrowing belief. So a lot of people need to believe something is true. I actually want to do a little snippet video on this, which probably will have already come out by the time this podcast comes out, this episode comes out. Um, about how motivational speakers who I tend to be really uncomfortable with are actually really valuable is because for people who are, have trouble having belief in themselves, they get to borrow the belief from the motivational speaker that they can in fact do something. And so on some level, it's kind of like when I, again, to refer to my depression, I had to borrow the belief the experience I was having would end and there would be a transition to something different because uh-huh. I did not believe it. I had no source of belief. I had, I had no capacity for belief 
myself that I, there was ever a moment that I would not feel the way that I felt in that moment. That's the, that's the wonder of depression. Mm. So I need to borrow the belief that it could change. Right. And so that's, that's how I I dealt with that. And the third way is if I am super excited about the potential outcome, if it's just the coolest thing in the world that I could be running my own business and hiring employees as a ran is an example, right. then it is a small price to pay to be uncomfortable showing up at a networking event or right. giving a talk to a bunch of strangers or, you know, risking embarrassment because, Oh my God, that is going to be so amazing. Or like dance. Oh my God. The idea of doing a quadruple pirouette is just the coolest freaking thing ever. I am going to sit there and fall again and again, trying to do this double so I could get myself to the capacity to do a triple to get myself to the capacity to do a quadruple. Like that's huge. Mm -hmm. So being able to inject some type of excitement is like the, the joy, the desire that I have well outstrips the capacity for the discomfort to hold me back. And it's not that there isn't friction. It's not that it isn't difficult. Just like when people say, oh, you know, this kid never applies themselves. And yet for three hours, they're in the corner building something. Mm-hmm. It's like, you cannot tell me that kid is not applying themselves. You can tell me that kid is not applying themselves to this thing that you want them to do. Mm-hmm. You can say that. Mm-hmm. This kid has the capacity to apply themselves. So why is it that the kid's willing to build for three hours but not willing to do math for five minutes? There's lots of reasons that could be. It could be they, their brain works around the in- intuition of building and they're doing intuitive math and they, you know, these numbers don't mean anything to them. It could be that they've had success before in building things. They've never felt success in math. So it's much more comfortable for them to expend a lot of energy because when they're doing math, they're expending their energy overcoming their discomfort to even think straight, to even achieve anything at all in math. And until they're going to win, until they win in math, it's going to be a struggle. It's not because they're not applying themselves. It's just that the output for that application looks like a lot less than the output of their application of energy when they're building. This is every human all the time, every single day. And we forget this. And I literally become emotional. I just started becoming emotional thinking about it is that we tell ourselves we're shit at things that we're not really shit at. It's that we're expending so much energy, emotional and intellectual and spiritual energy. I, you know, I hate the term spiritual in this context, but I'm going to apply it here anyway and physical too sometimes yes exactly to overcome the brain is the hungriest organ in the body and so even if you were to say all of this is purely scientific we're going to scrap the terms mental emotional and spiritual we're just going to talk about it in terms of everything that happens in the brain the brain is the hungriest organ so if you approach something that you think you suck at you are expending 10 20 100 times the amount of energy Right. To get a result that you want than for something that you already inherently enjoy or feel good at. You can expend way less energy and get way more result that is in line with what you want. Yeah. So there yeah. is a conscious requirement to say, I expect one trillionth of the output, one trillionth of the result that I want doing this thing that I struggle with versus right. the expectation of like, I've always been good at everything, 
right? Again, this goes, this this reinforms fixed mindset if you think you can apply the same amount of energy to something you're not good at as something right. you are good at and get the same result. It's just not real. It is a thing that all of us need to overcome. It's inherent. Like there are some people who are this amazing capacity to be like, no, I'm going to fall on my face 10,000 times. And every time I fall on my face, I'll celebrate it because it means I did something. Like those people blow my mind. I am working to be those people right, right now. <laughs> Likewise, it's interesting that you bring up the, the you know the, the the notion of math. Um, I was I had to be math. I got the only class I ever got an F in was math. I got a, uh, I got a, I got an F in for one term in my high school geometry class, and it just didn't didn't compute. It wasn't right. and 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 it was really weird. Years later, it was like like a cloud or a, a, a veil opened and it all made sense. It's like, Oh, this is easy. Yeah. Why did I fight that? Why did I struggle with that for so long? Yeah. 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 You'd have to go back and quote diagnose, you know, uh, teenage Paul to figure out what uh, exactly was happening. But, but uh, that's, that's how I was with language, man. Language learning was a pain in the ass for me trying to learn German or Spanish or anything was just such a pain. And then when I found joy in it, right. And when I didn't have this, the need to be right about it, right. Suddenly it was all super, not easy, still a challenge, but all oh, that energy that I was putting into trying to not embarrass myself, right. I was putting that energy into actually learning and suddenly oh. it's like free to follow my face and enjoy it and free to, to celebrate my learning and my growth. It's just well, a very different experience. That's what I tell people all the time. Cause I'm a, I'm a natural kind of linguist. I speak about five languages or just, I pick them up here and there and smatterings of others. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just, ah, I just can't, I can't. I can't, I can't learn a language. I say, you know why? Why? Because you're trying to do it here. You need to do it here and here at your heart. Because mm. once, I mean, I had a really great experience. Um, it's a long story, so I won't go into it, but it, it left me with an epiphany. And I realized that if you, if you come from the heart, uh, it, it's all going to, it's all going to come in. It, 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 will, it allows everything to come right into you. And, uh, I mean, look, I was 12 years old. I went to Italy. You, you know me. I'm not a, you know, quiet kind of guy. I had to learn to speak Italian or I didn't get to talk to anybody. So it's like, here you go. And that's when I realized that I had this knack. And then I, um, I, um, you know, I studied French in, in, in high school and college and Japanese in graduate school. And, uh, mm. and, I, and I went to Japan. I was really worried. I was scared. I didn't know what my, my language capacity was. And I get there and I'm like, I'm kicking ass. I'm doing great. It was like, oh, you know, how, how I undersold myself in job interviews and things like that because I just had no idea that my Japanese was as good as it was when I went in. Was there. Yeah, it was cool. Then you had wins to prove and reinforce and yeah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it has been just about an hour and a half. So I think we're probably in a position to be wrapping up. And we've yeah. we finally, finally I think we've covered twice. Yeah. yeah. Outline that we yeah. had to chat about. And it took us an hour plus each time to even get through the sub point we wanted right. to chat about. So 
whether it's specifically about the conversation today or about the series of conversations that we had to kind of tie it together, are there any major takeaways that you have? Any last thoughts you have you want to wrap up? Any practical like technique or thought, something that people could apply right away from the conversation that we had today, even though this is probably, they're now listening to episode three of this, you know, round three. Uh, I, I, I think that this last, uh, the last point on our outline, embracing action as a remedy for indecision. Uh, I guess I'll just give it a real world example. Uh, I was out of town camping this weekend and in Arizona, the, the holiday weekends are like awful. It's like being on the 405, right? right. Like you have there in California all the time. Um, but uh, I, I got to the junction point and I could go south to Phoenix. And I thought, well, I got all this food in the car. Why don't I just head up north to see my daughter in, in, in Flagstaff? And I, I'll make her dinner. So and I was kind of, I mean, this traffic jam, I'm saying, well, 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 hell with it. North I go, and it was great. I, I came up, I, I got to drive along this really beautiful road with this lake, and I, got, I stopped and took photographs, and it was just that thing. Everything kept opening up. Got there, took the food out. We cooked it real quick. Uh, I had dinner for, what was it, Five of us. I had enough food for five of us. I made a real nice stir fry, and it was just a beautiful experience because I just and it was a spur decision too. It was just kind of like a spontaneous decision. Boom, I'm gone. Yeah. And um, like I said, things opened up, and I think that's true. I think this. I and mean, we said this. I said this earlier. I think once you take that step, once you get on the dance floor, music sounds better. Your body starts grooving, and. and <laughs> And you're in, you're in the flow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'd like to highlight something similar, which is, um, all of this is natural. Mm-hmm. Being overwhelmed is natural. Being, feeling discomfort is natural. This isn't, this isn't a sign that something is wrong, that, that someone feels overwhelmed or, or uncomfortable, that that is part of the process. And so step one is accepting discomfort. Step two is recognizing that the discomfort would be less if we weren't trying to be right mm-hmm. and starting to embrace this idea that either there is no right answer or, or if you do think still there is some type of right answer, there's a, a scale, there's a, a continuum right. Of, of rightness and that um, it's okay for it not to be to get the exact outcome you want. You don't even know that if you'd made a different decision, you would have gotten a different outcome. Um, that's what the postmortem analysis is after the fact, not before the fact. So that leads us inevitably then to taking action and um, and and scaling our expectations about that action. That once we take the action, we're going to feel a sense of relief, mm-hmm. regardless of whether we get the result that we want or not. <laughs> so, yeah, regardless of the outcome, exactly. Regardless of the outcome, and so we can steer ourselves toward the outcome we, that we think we want um, and, and find something to, to celebrate within that, whether it's that we took the action at all or celebration in a part of the experience or a part of the results. It really doesn't matter. Um, 
whatever aligns for you, listener, person, human, who's, who's attempting to apply this, uh, that, and, and not having an expectation that the result is going to be the equivalent of anything that we're good at. Like, well, you also have the right to, if you're, you're, you've taken this, made this decision and you're moving this way, you also have the right to decide that I'm going to go a different way somewhere down the line. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Either. You have the right to change your mind, which goes back to the, um, you know, this, this whole thing about being correct. Mm-hmm. It's not like you made a mistake by going that direction. Going that direction just made it really apparent to you that that's not what you want. And it's wrong direction. Oh, and I now, don't turn. You, yeah, you go in that other direction. Now you actually feel way better about everything. But the thing is, if you had never done that, then if you had taken that action, you always would have wondered if this would have made you happier. Mm-hmm. So instead of kicking yourself for having made the wrong decision going down that path, you get to take whatever learnings and apply them to the thing that now you're going to enjoy even more. I mean, <laughs> I was going to be an IT professional and then I did retail sales and then that led to massage therapy that then led to um, being at, uh, in an occupational educational environment that that, you know, as, as a, as basically a instructional assistant. And then that led me to, to also doing uh, adult ed, which led me to working with people who were in a CalWORKs program, which is where you, it's essentially a form of welfare where you get job training, but until you can get into your class, you basically have to do some life skills stuff. And so I was an assistant in one of those life skills classes called the bridge program. And then that, all that, all those experiences led me to understand that I didn't want to teach high school because I'd be so narrowed in and I wanted to be a generalist. And so I sought out elementary education. And then, then I had negative experiences in mainstream classrooms that I couldn't process, which led me to want to start a daycare, which, which introduced me to a Montessori teacher. But I was like, oh my God, Montessori, this is what I've wanted my whole life. Mm-hmm. And then in the Montessori classroom, I discovered how good I was at helping people bring out the best of themselves and in their own genuine desires and, and how these kids, even nine-year-olds, had this capacity that if, if you asked them questions, they could figure out what they wanted. And when the, what they were ignorant to was natural because they were nine. And I could inform them about those things they were ignorant to and, and help them build themselves up in this really wonderful way that they could own. And it was in that and then being depressed and needing to recover that I got deep into, you know, self-development in a whole new way. I'd been doing self-development since I was like 14, reading books and, and taking classes and doing all these things to, to come home to myself, coming, recovering from my depression to then go, wow, looking at my teacher, this is, this resonates so much. This is what I want to do to the point where having a random friend and, and thinking, you know, oh, we're just having a great conversation about her work situation where I'm asking a bunch of questions and being intuitive and giving her some information from my intuition for her to say, Ryan, have you thought about being a life coach? I just told you 20 years of my life, mm-hmm. roughly. 16, 17 years of my life with some background about kind of how I was when I was younger. That was not a linear freaking path. <laughs> and I have taken 
every piece of knowledge. Like I am so confident as a business owner in tweaking technology and doing what it needs to do with a website or social media or whatever else because of all that other stuff that I did. Right. You know, my classroom experience is integral. I grew up dancing. My performance capacity is integral to me giving talks. And it was being in front of the kids and in the classroom and doing all this stuff. Teaching is a form of performance, in, in my opinion. I don't mean that in an inauthentic way. I simply mean you need to show up in a way that you learn to show up when you perform on a stage. This was all self-informing. This was not, I made a wrong decision by choosing to be a massage therapist. I learned so much about entrepreneurship and healing and my own limitations and things I was good at, I didn't know I was good at by, by having been a massage therapist for a year. So I highly encourage anyone who's listening to this not to see their life as a series of failures leading to some monolithic success, but that each experience we've had in our lives is information. It's learning, it's growth, it's fuel, it's opportunities to understand ourselves and our world better to get closer and closer to this sense of fulfillment. It's it's like enlightenment and next the laundry. Like it's not, (laughs) this isn't a thing where you hit an end point and it's done. Right. You know, it's, integrating these understandings into our life so that we, in my opinion, can enjoy that life more and more. That's my perspective. Some people may want to make their life easier more and more. I don't particularly seek ease in that regard because I have less fulfillment in some ways when I have, when I avoid discomfort, which I see ease very often as avoiding discomfort. So it's interesting that, you know, you're, you're documenting of, uh, of the, that history of yours because I had very different. I did different things, but it's same same thing. It's like, oh, okay, I'll do this. Huh, what do I learn here? Like I, I did a stint for a few years as a car salesman, and I, I learned a lot about negotiation and uh, you know just not being afraid to stand somebody up and say, here, this is this is the deal. Take it or leave it, and. I wasn't afraid to offend them. I wasn't afraid to, to lose the the sale, if you will, because there's always going to be another one. Why not? So here, here's what we got. It's the best I can do. Take it, take it, and if not, have a nice day. Not take it or leave it. But I always kind of, I was, I was a friendly kind of guy. Well, I bet if you were to look at your path, as I reflect on my path, there is a common thread through all of those things I just described. And that was service. And mm-hmm. I was just getting closer and closer to the type of service that was most fulfilling to me in ways that I could create the most impact, um, you know, the most positive impact in the lives of those around me. Um, so anyhow, that, that, that's, that's, that's the nugget. <laughs> I think service is king. And I think that you're providing a great service here. Once again, I'm most appreciative to be part of this and uh, hopefully we can do it again, but not get quite so uh, expensive. Yeah, yeah. We will never tackle this big of a topic uh, (laughs) in this way again, simply not because it's a bad idea, but because I think both of us value um, conciseness in in this type of communication and certainly uh, 
we were not concise in in any of these conversations and that's okay and it's great i think it's valuable and i still am I'm gonna release it so people can kind of hear our our meanderings and i and and hopefully we'll get um get much value from it so thank well, you well I, I hope i hope they will get some value from it i hope whoever listens does uh does gain some insight here whatever it might be and uh because I, I think I know you're dedicated to that. I know I'm dedicated to to serving people. And I think I think you asked the question, what would you do if you had unlimited resources? Well, I probably would travel too, but I would travel so that I could be a service to more people and meet more people yeah. somehow, some way. Right on. Well, thanks for hanging out these last three epic conversations, sir. It's been my total pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, I am sure that at some point we will do this again. Next time on Educate for Life with Ryan Francis. My wonderful guest today is Trudy Stone, author, certified culinary nutritionist, coach, and instructor. I have the great pleasure of watching her content regularly on Instagram. And today we're going to talk about being a hashtag brain boss. Say hello, please. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Ryan. I am so excited to be here and I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, me too. We had to reschedule a couple times, so I'm, <laughs> I'm super, super stoked uh, that we're able to pull it off. I was hoping you could tell my audience a little bit about yourself in your own words. Sure. Um, so like you said, I'm a certified culinary nutritionist, and all that really means is that I'm trained in the therapeutic properties of foods and how to use those foods to both prevent as well as treat disease. Um, I'm also an author. I'm the author of the book Unbreakable, and that's about the seven habits that I use to lose 30 pounds about six years ago now and keep it off. And then I'm also a TV guest expert, and I regularly appear on TV just doing guest spots talking about nutrition. So cool. Yeah, I love your, I love your Instagram uh, content. So, Thank and I you. know we're going to talk about some of that right now. Yeah. Specifically, something you brought up when we were chatting before was this idea of, well, let's say, the supremacy of mindset. This mm-hmm. idea that sometimes people think um, just food is the answer, or just um, physical activity is the answer, or whatever is the answer. But there's really no lasting health, wellness or changing your life without mindset work. Right, absolutely. Hey again, thanks for listening. If you want more goodness, come hang out with me on Instagram at educate for underscore life. That's educate, the number four, underscore life. I jump on almost every day and go live once per week to answer questions and just talk about what's on my mind. We've got some cool stuff coming down the pipe, so expect some announcements in the near future. And with that, I hope you have a great week. Talk with you soon.